Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. I'm thrilled to have on a very forward-thinking job shop owner today. Rod Blessy is president of All Dean Metal Products, a sheet metal fabricator in New Milford, Connecticut. What I like about his story is how, with intention, he changed up his shop from one that was stagnant to one that now has been vibrantly growing 10% per year. We'll get into the big movie made that started the change and also some of the other ways that Aldine is unique, including how they enter everything into their ERP system. Rod loves data, which ties into his vision on how a job shop must work today in regards to its customers. Yes, that is a teaser because the answer is simple, yet profound in how it changes an owner's mindset and how he looks at a business. Let's get rolling. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Rod. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. We are happy to have you. So much to get into today, but I wanted to first ask two things. One, I'm curious, you were a club DJ, so I want to hear what that's all about, but can you tell us in your club DJ voice? No. <laughs> hey. No, I, my club DJ voice, I'd have to be on the microphone. It's a, I always started with a hey, because when I'd say hey, like I could tell whether or not my levels were okay. okay. So I would always look at my levels by a hey, and then I would just follow whatever, you know, I was trying to push at the club. You know, most of the time it was, hey, you know, we got a new band coming up in 10 minutes, but hey, the bar's open. Everybody go get your drinks, get out to the dance floor. We're going to get started. Sounds really weird, but that was in the more late days when I was older and I, and I wanted to make more money. So I learned that I had to listen to my bosses and if they were telling me to push something or they wanted me to advertise something, mm -hmm. I followed the, them exactly. But when I wanted to be, you know, a, a, a DJ that was going to be at the raves and the big clubs and all that kind of stuff, I was all about myself. But it was, it was a good time because we were doing mobile work at the same time. And that, that really led me into wanting to be in this business, which was, you know, learning to run a business, learning to keep your books, you know, where you made money, how you pay taxes, uh, what mm -hmm. you spent money on. Um, so the club DJ thing started me out, but it really pushed me into business. Was that a full-time job for you then? Or nope. something you just did for fun in the evenings? I assume it was in the evenings. Actually, um, while I was at college, I got into DJing, doing the mobile thing, and we did like college parties and stuff. And mm -hmm. it was to the point where we were making a couple thousand dollars a week, um, and it was helping pay for school. And it was also a lot of extra money to pay for my car and 
my rent and all those kinds of things. So it started as something fun and turned into a business. And, you know, I, I did it to get through college. And then after college, I continued it as side money. Nice. Yeah, it's fun. In regards to Aldean, I think the story behind your decision to stop not growing, and I think that's the way you phrased it, is incredibly powerful. There is a lot of intention behind it. And I think many owners would be afraid to do what you did, yet perhaps they can remove that fear by hearing how it went for you. And you're a sheet metal fabricator, but I don't think it really matters what type of shop you are. Can you share the story of the, the background, I guess, of not growing and what was the catalyst and what happened? Yeah, we did experience a significant amount of growth um, over a five-year period. And the growth was really because we were, we were doing similar things to what you guys were successful at, at Rapid, which was um, we were as many customers as we could take any quote, mm-hmm. do whatever you could do. And because we're a relationship based business where we want to grow a relationship with everyone, we found that we had brought on so many customers, but we didn't know what our, what their potential was. And we hadn't vetted them similar to the way that you guys were talking about that you wanted to have that information about the customer or the purchasing person or the next purchasing person, always following those leads Mm -hmm. um, and developing a customer. And for me, we got to the point where we couldn't grow with that amount of customers in a relationship form. Um, So at the time we had about 160 customers and we were, you know, we had gotten to the point where from a staff perspective, staff was growing to meet the customer needs but yet our main customers that we had built our business on were affected negatively um, because our eyes were all over the place and our focus was not on where it needed to be main customers down. It was really heavily focused on anybody that we could get. So our growth started slowing because of that, because our main customers then said, Hey, well, you know, they're really busy and they can't get my parts turned around quickly enough or they're not turning the quotes around quickly enough. So I'm not going to increase my spend with them. Um, so the, the intentional how, decision was made. I'm sorry. How were they affected negatively? Can you be specific? The yeah. they, telephone calls weren't returned or quotes it was, were long? It was mostly, uh, mostly negatively affected in their quote return. So someone would send over a quote and maybe they need it in, in three days or two days. And it was taking us seven days because the pile of quotes that we had was so high mm. and we were trying to meet everybody's needs. And then also we're rushing jobs for new customers because we want to make them happy. And we're taking for granted our current customer base because we're like, Oh, they're a great customer. Let's make sure we get this new customer through. Um, and I think a lot of people do that. You know, you want to get a relationship with a new customer and everybody's focused on that. And the salesperson certainly wants to get that new customer loaded up. And so there was a lot of things pulling at us in different directions that um, was, was not sustainable. And then, so I may have misspoken earlier, you were growing, then did you reach a period of stagnation where the growth slowed or? Yes, so we were growing in customer count, but we were not growing in overall sales. Mm. So our, our, our sales got to a point where we we're like, oh, maybe this is it, you know, but, but our customer base was growing. We got up to about, you know, let's say 160 customers that we were trying to take care of. And a moment came when we were reviewing sales because we do sales projections. We do five-year projections. We look at all the customers and Mm -hmm. and our sales team comes together and gives projections. So out of those 160 customers, there was probably about 80 customers who had no potential to go over $5,000 a year in sales. They were new customers we had brought in. But when we started investigating each one and asking the question, what's your spend? What is your growth? And I started saying, well, you know, what we're doing with you right now is pretty much what we're going to do every year. Mm. Um, Because they do, maybe they do a lot of machining that that we weren't going to be able to source for them or whatever it was. And we're saying, well, we're, we're putting a lot of manpower behind trying to get these 80 customers taken care of like a partner. Mm-hmm. And we were successful at doing that, but we weren't successful at keeping our top customers happy 
we serviced them and we got them quality parts, but they were getting frustrated. So we, we took that, okay, let's look at these 80 customers. If you're not going to do over $5,000 a year, but I have to have three of my team members working on those accounts to be able to get that. And then overall you look at it and you're like, okay, well, what is it going to do? $350,000, $400,000 with the business with them. Mm-hmm. And then we did a, a strategic move. And, and this is the hardest thing I think for any owner to do, mm-hmm. which is to say, I have to tell these people that I can't do business with them because there's no growth there. And I got to sacrifice that so that I can go back to my main customers and say, hey, do you have any growth potential? Because I'm moving away from this plan and I'm going back to my other customers. And that's where the explosion took off and the growth started. When you say you had to tell them what I am sort of paraphrasing in my mind is you fired them. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was very nice to everybody. I mean, you know, I just sure. have to yeah, you have the to phone be. and have the conversation to say, you know, and I, and I had to tell my sales team, which they had the harder time than me because I had made the decision, but to just say, hey guys, we have to just tell them the company has made a decision that if you're not going to do over $5,000 worth of sales a year, that, you know, we're going to ask you to go somewhere else. You know, we appreciated your business. And we, we liked working with you, but we're going to go in a different direction. And, and since that, it has grown. So now we're looking at customers, you know, $25,000 or $50,000 a year. Um, mm-hmm. Because as we grow, we're putting more time and effort into growing those bigger accounts. How many um, customers do you have now? We're working on about... 80 customers total. And I kept and, all the customers that I do business with. So if it's a vendor back and forth, or if we mm-hmm. had a relationship for the last 80 years, yeah. then we still do business with them no matter what their sales are. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the 25,000, the 50,000 years still trying to winnow that down and really focus on customers who have growth potential and service them. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, Really, we're focusing on right now about 40 to 50 customers that we're growing with. Um, and the, the goal with marketing, the goal with everything we do with our website is to try to add, you know, two to three customers that are going to fit that profile into our customer base so we can grow with them. What are you looking for in terms of revenue for these ideal two to three customers? So... Usually I'm looking for between a hundred and five hundred thousand dollars in sales. Mm-hmm. Obviously you never know what kind of customer you're going to get. You know, you love to take the right. million dollar customers. Right. Um, but I think one of the things that's hard as a business owner is to manage your growth with your technology that you're constantly upgrading mm-hmm. um, and software that you're constantly upgrading as well as not going too hard, too fast. So as you can fail mm-hmm. and, and not live up to what your reputation is for the new customer. So it's weeding them out and it's having those tough conversations right up front. Hey, what's your sales look like? You know, what do you guys have for the next five years? What do you, maybe what's your spend now? Are you looking to bring me in as a second source, a third source? You know, what am I looking at as a company? And just ask them. So those aren't questions that... I think job shop owners, salespeople commonly ask, how do you initiate that conversation? Do you say, before we get going, I'd like to understand the, the profile of you as a customer? What are some of the specific questions or, or ways that you open up that conversation so they're willing to talk to you about that and not be offended? Yeah, so I always have the conversation with, you know, at Aldine, we're looking for partners. And I'll say, you know, in, in looking for partners, we want to make sure that your company and your projections and where you want to take your company fits in with ours. And that's the way that we're going to succeed as a vendor to best serve you. And so when I say that, I, I start that approach. It then leads me to say, and, and because of that, you know, I just want to know if, if, you know, what your sales are looking like and, you know, what you maybe the potential for the amount of business that you'd bring to the table to our company. Now, you're not always going to get that answer. That's easy. You know, and sometimes you're dealing with someone who um, is not, um, how do I say it? They, they don't know what their upper management has planned. 
-hmm. um, but you certainly can ask the question and frame it in a way that allows them to see that it's not because I want to get rid of you in the beginning. It's because I want to know how my team is going to serve you best sure. and where you fit within our, within our goals and within our timeline, you know, in our five-year plan. So it's a tough conversation, but I think it's worth having because our relationships are a lot longer term. Who, who has that? Is that always you or do the sales people have that? So I usually initiate the contact with, with new customer prospects. I, I am in charge of the sales team as well mm -hmm. as you know, running the business. So I initiate that, but I will allow my inside salesperson to have that conversation with them. Depend it depends on what level they're dealing with. So if it's a, you know, just a, a buyer, let's mm -hmm. say, my inside salesperson is probably gonna have that conversation with them. If it's an owner, I'm certainly going to be involved in that conversation. And, and if it's upper management, I'm going to be involved because I, I want to know that the words that I'm saying and, and how I present things are exactly what I, I want to be said. It's easier with a buyer for you can make mistakes and it's not going to be a big deal. Sure. So that makes me ask, how have you trained your inside sales people so that they ask the questions correctly? Yeah. So we went through a whole, a round of conversations uh, when we first implemented this. And we have sales meetings monthly uh, and quarterly where we go over each customer and we discuss them where they're at, what's gone on the last month, what are the quotes, et cetera. And then as we got to customers where we were looking to remove them, mm -hmm. we had mock conversations. So you, you did know, some role you're, playing. You're the customer, ask me, you know, call me up and say, hey, I got a new RFQ for you. And I'll answer the question for you and tell you, you know, where we want to go. And I, and I just did that for them. And mm -hmm. eventually it became that they were saying exactly what I wanted to be said. And now once we did that, that was the hard part, right? How much time did you invest in that? How many hours to get them to that point? Um, you know, honestly, it was about two hours hmm. of overall. So that's um, not much. It wasn't much at all because again, they're a team member. So they want to do whatever, you know, the company wants to do and it's best going to serve us. So they're, you know, and I have good people, so they were right on point. Mm -hmm. And really it was my estimator, my inside salesperson and myself. Those are the only three that, I, that have authority to have that type of conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it works. I want to go back to when you made the decision to have the conversation with these 80 or so customers and, you had to make a hard commitment first. Was that a joint decision within the company? Or, because I think of it, and 80 customers times 5,000, if they all hit 5,000, there's only 400,000. So it's not that big a number when you look at it in the scheme of things. Right. Is that a way that you framed the ability to say, this doesn't make sense to have these folks on board? How did you have the courage to make that decision? Well, at the time we were doing about two and a half million dollars in sales. So $400,000 was, was a pretty big, big, Still big chunk. Yeah, it was a big chunk. So I set up personal face-to-face -face meetings with my top 10 customers. Mm -hmm. And I went in to tell them the decisions we had made. And I said, we're focused on you. We want to grow with you. If there's things that we're not currently making or that you've held back, you know, we'd like the opportunity to quote it. And here's, how we're going to perform. We made the decision to drop a bunch of customers that we knew had no growth because we know that a partnership with you is going to help our company grow. Mm -hmm. And that conversation with those top 10 customers led to an explosion of opportunity from customers <clears throat> that we had for years and years and years that we never thought to go back to and say, can I have more? Or <clears throat> is there a larger percentage I might be able to go at if I'm focused on you? And then everybody on the team knew from day one, those top 10, they are going to be, they're your best friend. Anything that comes from them. Did you now prioritize them in terms of say, returning quotes? Did they move to the top of the pile as this new focus or were yes. there just enough less, less quotes that it didn't matter? Um, no, it actually was more quotes. We were oh. doing more quotes than we were doing when we had 160 customers when we went back to those top 10 customers because they now 
had a commitment and they were flooding with flooding us with opportunities. So how did so you we had more quotes? How did you get them out? Because it sounds like you you were at seven days before. Yeah. So that wouldn't have been acceptable to these folks who you're renewing the commitment with. How did you get the quote turnaround yeah. time down? Well, we did restructure our sales team in the process of that. So we made sure we had administrative sales who mm. was setting up quotes all the time. Mm. Um, we made sure our inside salesperson could focus on the gathering of the quotes and everything was set up for our estimator to succeed. And at the time we were doing everything in E2. So it was a little bit longer, but I think the key to it as an owner is when you're working with new customers, you don't have a feel for exactly how you're quoting them. You're doing the best you can to do an estimate or whatever. But when you have your main customers, you know how they work, mm -hmm. you know what they need, you know, approximately what price range that they have to be in and, mm -hmm. and you're going after them aggressively. So the quotes can go much faster. So it's more from an experience okay. standpoint. Yeah. No, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. My question to you before you answered it sort of externally, but how about internally? How did internally as a company, you have the courage to have the conversation with those customers you let go? Yeah, so um, we were fortunate over 10 years ago to have one of my father's cousin's husband come in and work with us and look at our whole company and how we were operating. Um, and he had a lot of ideas that changed us from that small family business mindset mm -hmm. to, to one to look at as a, as a larger business, put in processes, job descriptions, company organization, all of those things to set us up, right? Mm. And he was really the one who came to my father and I and said, this is the proposal. Look at this. We mm. have to make this decision because we're spending hundreds of thousand dollars on team members to service this amount of customers. What if we had less people to do that? Maybe some people that could be reassigned to other departments and then we could service our customers better. And, and I, I got to tell you, I was probably like 90% of the people who were listening to me. I was like, no way. We can't ever tell a customer we don't want them. We've never done that before. We will make anything for anybody, anytime. Mm -hmm. And it took about, I would say it took two meetings over the course of two quarterly meetings for me to really see what he saw and understand what he was proposing. Mm. And once I got on board and my father agreed, we were full speed ahead. So it was internally having those discussions with upper management and then us coming to the realization that he was right. Mm. It was not easy. And now you have the confidence that that is the right approach. And so, as you said, the numbers going up perhaps to 25 or $50,000 yep. and, and you feel good about that. This, this was really cool. Thanks for sharing all that because I think a lot of shop owners, as you said, are afraid and are trapped within their existing customer base. And if you really step back and you look at the energy that is expended, there's a, 80-20 principle, the Pareto's law, which says roughly 20% of your customers give you 80% of your revenue. And, and it can be used in a whole bunch of different ways. I'm sure you and many of the listeners are familiar with that. And I think about how you are now able to dedicate that energy in your shop to those, say, those top 10 customers. And I think also that one of the things that is not taken into account is many of the smaller customers have sort of weird parts and they require the more senior people in your organization. And so not only is it, as you said, there's a lot of time being taken up, but it's, it's the expensive time. It's the time that's not easy to hire, to add on. And you have to be really aware of where your highly skilled people on your floor, who they're spending their time on. It makes a big difference. I think I should add one thing. While the decision was hard, if from a management standpoint, when you're focusing on, and, and really I'm focusing on 25 major customers at the moment, is you start to look at technology different. Because it, when you have general, large, and like you said, some people have weird parts, some people have large cabinets, some people have small parts, and you're trying to do all of those things, 
the technology you invest in sometimes is trying to, to make sure that everybody gets fed. Mm-hmm. But when you're focused on these customers that are partners with you, you invest in technology that's going to make it successful for those customers to grow and reduce prices there. And in turn, we're a better company for it. That's a great segue into technology. We're going to chat about that, but let's just step back so that we give the listener a flavor of your shop, where you're coming from, a little bit of your history, the the size of your shop, that sort of thing. And, and you are third generation. Yes. Yes. So my, can my can you yeah tell us tell us about Aldine what, how that all evolved. Yeah. So my grandfather started the company in 1938. They were in Long Island. They moved to Danbury first because he had a partner at the time and they were over a hundred employees, I believe. Hmm. They both decided they were going to go their separate ways. And he moved to Brookfield, Connecticut in 1955, starting a shop where he, his relationship with the military were, you know, said, you know, put a shop open and we're going to feed your work. And we did all military work. So basically all the stamping and bending that we did was for the military. Hmm. And then when things got tough with the military, my father just go out and start knocking on doors and made some key relationships uh, locally. Um, but we were very small. So we were maybe 10 or 12 man shop for, you know, a long time. Um, right now we're in a sweet spot. I like to say where we have 30 people at Aldine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was a process that I think many people have a long history realize that there's ups and downs Um, and we've come through the really slow times managed well made sure that our employees were always taken care of first Mm -hmm. that's something that was drilled down from my grandfather to me Mm -hmm. Um, and made sure that team members are most important and everything else you know we can deal with so managed the hard times and grew to where we are today Um, and it's just a really fun time to be in, in the family business because I get to see my dad every day. Um, and I, it, it's, it's just, it's not the family, you know, it's the family that you work with. You know, you call me a work mm-hmm. family. Um, but I'm truly blessed to be able to work with my dad every day and see him um, and hear stories. And I try to remember all the stories <laughs> that going back. And I guess I'm, I'm just really lucky that, that this progression led to the point that we are today where he allows me to make some of those, you know, to your next point, technology decisions to try and take this really to the next level. One of the things that caught my eye is that you're a sheet metal fabricator, but you also are not afraid of the larger stuff and you actually make walk-in size structural fabrications, which is not typical for a shop. And you also are comfortable with NEMA enclosures. So I like how you have some niches that are different and probably open up some other doors for you. Can you just give us some other characteristics of your shop? Do you punch prints, lasers? Do you have any milling equipment? Just help us get a flavor for the shop. Sure. So we have press brakes, time savers. We do have laser and turret laser. Um, mm-hmm. We have automated turret lasers, so it'll run 24-7, automatic load-unload the sheets, um, countersinking, tapping, forming. And what brand? Oh, we're all Amata. Okay. I've, we've been with Amata for a long time. And, and as far as the NEMA enclosures and the, and the walk-in size cabinets, there was a, the, when you came from a military background and, and looking at the history of our company from where my father's perspective, the details and restrictions and everything you have to do to be able to serve military, when you come to commercial, it almost seems easy because there are much less restrictions. I don't say it's easy. It's not easy. Sure. But, but from that, to, so when we started making big enclosures and, you know, they're, they're looking at an enclosure and they're saying, well, you know, it's got to be square within an eighth, let's say, when, back in the day. And, and it seemed easy. Because my father always tells me about, you know, when they were making, it's still on the plane, the doomsday plane, which is a cool story, um, is where the president and the staff and all, they get on this plane if there's a nuclear war and they're they're operating Mm -hmm. everything from way up high. And now it's got all this new technology on it, but we made the computer cabinets that went on the doomsday Mm. plane. And they're still there because they want to have every old technology available to them should 
all the satellites go down or, or all the communications oh. go down. So they still have to be able to do everything analog. Wow. So it's pretty cool that our, our parts are still, I don't even know if they fly them around, but they, I suppose <laughs> they test them, but they're still on that. And, and I remember looking at the documentation for stuff like that and, and how you had to test and how you had to prove and how you had to inspect and the, the qualifications to be able to ship and look at some of the stuff that we're doing now. Um, it translated well to making sure that quality was always a part of what you do, right? Because I'm sure people who are doing military work out there are like, yeah, man, mm -hmm. you have to do a lot of documentation, but you gotta be right or it's, it's gonna be a problem. It led to that mindset of always, always dotting every I and crossing every T, which is again, why I use my ERP the way that I, that I use it. I want to get into how you use your ERP, but that's a piece of your overall vision and your vision involves a lot of technology. You look to the customer for inspiration. So can you describe how your vision incorporates that and how it drives how you want your shop to run? Yeah, so I think it's important that you are visiting your customers and or having discussions with your customers as much as possible to see what they're thinking about next. What's that next step? And be involved as much as possible in the prototyping and the discussions around how to meet price points and things like that. Like for instance, one of our customers, they have much of their parts involve radius, right? And so when we first started with them, we were bumping all the radiuses on the press break. Mm -hmm. And we were making sure that we could get as close as possible but when you're bumping on the press brake, there's always an open if you're mm -hmm. trying to do a full radius. And we couldn't ever get a true radius on it because we would hit the machine, the back of the mm -hmm. machine. Or the sure. Right. So we looked at, we talked to them and talked about where their numbers were going. And, and I said to them, I, I found something that I think will be able to get you a true radius, but you know, we're going to have to make an investment in it. And I just want to make sure that this is the design's not going to change or anything like that. And they said, yeah, no, it's not going anywhere. This is what we want to do. And we found a roller um, that was a smaller roller, but we could time the radius roll. Hmm. And so we invested $75,000 in a machine that now allowed us to give our customer a true radius. We can use that machine for other customers and other parts that mm -hmm. we're fabricating. But the initial investment was because we went out and reached out to our customer with an idea and then had that discussion and then made the investment, which then brought their price down, right? So brought right, their right, price right. down, brought value to them and, and an investment on our side then brings value to our other customers because we have that piece of equipment. And part of this is being as frictionless as possible to your customers and looking at it sort of to how consumer products work. Can you talk to how you view that? I sure everybody does this. Maybe it's just me, but research your customers. You got to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And you know, their website gives all sorts of information, right? But then you start talking to the people that work there and asking them, well, how does this do this? And you know, what are you trying to accomplish in, in this part? Like, let's say they're using UV lights and, and they're, they're curing stuff. Okay. Mm. Well, how does that UV light sit in the enclosure that you're trying to make? Right. And having that conversation so you can go back to your engineers and say, this is the, the commercial use. This is what they're trying to do. But somebody somewhere was sitting there engineering it and they wanted everything to have a radius and the marketing's going to put this there and that there. And they made it into something that's double the cost. Um, mm -hmm. So then you go back and, and you have those conversations about what can you get away with without adding to the cost, but it's going to do what you need it to do and still look good. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I went with my mind. Well, I'm thinking before we started the recording here, you talked about wanting your shop to run as easily for the customer as Amazon does for how we as consumers buy it. And we take Amazon for granted now and we get, at least I get annoyed when I go to a website and it's not as easy to buy as from Amazon. Sometimes I'll just say the hell with it and look and see if their product's available on Amazon because it's so much easier to, to buy it. So what are some of the ways, you, you mentioned technology and, and pinpointing it to the smaller group of customers. What's your vision of technology in the shop and 
how you're using it to, I'll put the words in your mouth, be more Amazon-like for your customers or perhaps even internally for the, the team members to work with one another? Yeah, it's a loaded question. Um, and so I have to go to certain levels. First one is team members. Team members are the most important thing. Got to mm -hmm. make them successful. Mm -hmm. So the, the machines that we buy and the technology that's in them, let's say press break, for example, we want to make it so our operators can succeed. So we want to offline program some press break operations so that when they load the program, it's, they know where the tools go. They know what they have to do, what the bends are supposed to be, all of that stuff makes it much easier for them than taking the print and calculating everything out. That's first off. Second thing is how do we get a program to part as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And that would mean everything being networked so that everybody knows exactly what job to run next. And when they spit that part out, they know exactly where it's going next. So that's the, that's the team member side, making it easier for them to check their parts, move them along to the next step. From the management side, technology involves quote to part, okay? We've partnered with paperless parts to take our quoting to the next level. So customers can load a part on my website that goes right into paperless parts. I have loaded different operations in there. So it, once I pick the process, mm -hmm. it loads everything, puts all the times in that I want it to have. And then I almost have a quote within 10 minutes. So I'm able to do that quick. They want to have the price as fast as possible. The same way you go to Amazon and you click on something, you can look at all the people who are offering it and they get those prices. Boom, I click it, I'm done, it's off my desk. Mm -hmm. So I want to use paperless to get those quotes as fast as possible to the customer so I can get an order. Then when I get an order, that's when I use, we use E2. And then everything then is seamless because purchasing is going to get their requirement. Um, the shop is going to know what they have to do to finish it. And so all of that technology working together then makes it quote fast, make it fast. And, and that adds value to your customer. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, well, what it sounds like is you view that technology makes everything faster. Absolutely, I mean, the more I can offer technology to my customer where they can do their job easy, easier. Mm -hmm. So again, if a customer can sit at his desk, load a, a file to paperless and get a quote, within hours. They've taken so much more time off of their day and how much they have to do to try to process something for their day. And I want to make that easier, which is why paperless parts is successful for us because we're trying to get that, that process as fast as possible, understanding that everybody wants to click and go, click and go, get on the next thing. I'm just going to throw my two cents in here. And this is the way that I, I look at the people who are requesting quotes from us. They have probably hundreds of RFQs on their desks and they have to get these parts and, and purchased components placed. They have a rough sense probably of what the part should cost and or at least a, a range perhaps based on a PLM system or something like that. So if you're in the ballpark and you get the quote back fast, you're, you're that easy vendor because they know there are suppliers that they have to work with who are going to be a pain in the ass to work with. They're going to have to call for quotes. They're going to have to drag stuff out of them. And so if you are that easy supplier and you just your stuff just zips through, your quality is always good, you get your quotes back fast, your parts are always delivered on time. They love you because that means that they don't have to spend the time on you where they will have to spend time on other folks and they get the stuff off their desk as fast as possible. I was that guy. I was exactly the, the vendor that you explained. I was always late on quotes. I was always begging the customer to wait for me to get them there. I was always saying, no, 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 we want to be in the game. We want to be in the game. And the order was placed. And we missed out on all these opportunities. And I, I'm, I like to be honest, as someone who's running a business, we made, we, I've made a lot of mistakes in things that I've done. But I've learned from every single one of them, and I'm getting better. 
And I know that the technology that we're investing in is going to make it so that I can track everything, see everything as an owner, mm-hmm. know what's going on and make and, and be able to make sure that things are getting done in a timely fashion the way I want to succeed, especially with quotes. Mm-hmm. So my team's then more successful and the company grows. I want to ask you a couple of questions on more the manufacturing side. So you're doing offline press break programming. Are you using the Amata programming package for that as well? Yeah, we're using Dr. A Bend for our programming package for that. We still okay. use um, AP100 for our nesting programs for flat layers. So that, that's all integrated. And then you had mentioned that you enter everything into E2. What does everything mean and, and why do you do that? Because that's a pretty high overhead. Yeah, so everything means that every detail of the customer is going to be entered. Every router step is going to be entered with accurate times, even at estimate stage. Mm-hmm. And every material, every price, so that it can be ordered the day that it's, that it's made into an order in our system. Mm-hmm. Now, I've done that for a long time, and it really translates well to, to all of our accounting is traced well, but our scheduling comes out much better because we've taken the time to actually put in accurate estimates of what it's gonna take. So when I look at my schedule board, I can see it. But mm-hmm. I wanna preference one thing. We've done the E2 thing 100% for a long time and, it was, and it's painstaking. So I went back and looked and I said, okay, well, if we're winning, let's say 70, 70% of our quotes that we do in E2, mm-hmm. okay? But we're losing because sometimes it takes, it's, it takes a long time to put all those details in. Mm-hmm. When we got involved with paperless, not to like make this a promotion for paperless, but when we got involved with paperless, the success was that we don't have to put all that information in to try to win a quote, but you still win a lot more quotes because they get there faster. And then from paperless, we put every line and every detail in E2. So when it goes into, so you're going to have every single thing from how much material is going to be needed, how many PEM nuts, Purchasing is going to get the required dates that they need because all the lead times are in there. Everything comes out so that when you're fab, when you, you give a, a delivery date, you have a really good shot of hitting that delivery date because your schedule showed you this is what you need to do to be successful. So I believe that the more information that you put into your ERP and use it properly, the benefits far outweigh all the expense that it takes to put in that information. But now you're only putting in the jobs that you win. That's the point. Uh-huh. Thank you for clarifying. So yeah. now I don't have to put every single thing in E2. I only have to do the ones I win in paperless. One of the things that you said, taking this even further, and, and not just the quoting, but everything, is you want to be paperless in your shop in 2021. That's correct. It is a lofty goal, but what I think we can accomplish. Everything is networked right? Everybody's doing network, even the ERPs are in the cloud and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, My goal, and and I've been working towards this, my first goal was to make sure that every employee logged on to every job, made sure that they signed off on every part. And we still put physical prints in the shop Mm -hmm. and and physical routers. I believe that it's possible to put monitors computer monitors that are at, you know, that are running the, the full ERP on out at the floor at every workstation and allow my team members to go over and hit that next job, see the print, log on to the job and get to work without having to, to go to a file and get papers and move them around. And that's my goal. I, I'm, I'm going to make sure that that happens because I also think it's a good sales tool. I mean, if you come walking through somebody's shop and they, everybody's got these big screens and they're working off of those screens and you know that if I said a hot job is hot right now, it's going to go right out to that operator. I don't have to walk anything out. I hit a button and they're working on that job. That was actually a selling point for us at Rapid when we would give customer tours is we had exactly that. We had a screen for every work center and the jobs were, there were no due dates on the folders. The, scheduling was all done on these large monitors and it showed the jobs in the order of priority 
as well as then which jobs were being worked on and by who. So the customers were blown away when they would see how precisely we were controlling our schedule and how quickly the schedule updated based upon different parameters that uh, the incoming orders, things like that. So I totally think it's feasible for you, Rod. You probably would be looking at it a little differently than, than we would. Is that the type of thing that E2 supports or you going to have to come up with an in-house solution? No, E2 supports it. They have, you know, you can send the workload out to the work center. You can send out batch lists to each employee. The key was though, it takes time because you have to make sure that the, your engineers are uploading the files to the job so that when people open the job, they got the right prints, they got the right specifications. Inspection has to be able to have all those, you know, specs documented. So we load every drawing that goes with a part to the part. So if you look up the part, all the masters are there saved mm-hmm. in the cloud with E2. So everybody has access to that. So when it gets to the shop, they'll have all those. So now I'm ready for that next step. I, you, you made one of the best points and you just hit on it again. And it was something that we talked about before we started um, is not putting the dates on the routers. That's another goal of mine. Like I haven't gotten to that point yet because I, I know that they still rely on some of those things in the shop on the shop floor, but I'd love to be able to make that step when we go to the paperless portion of it. I think there's a lot of value if you can do that as a shop owner, because the algorithms for scheduling, whether they come from an ERP system or you develop them yourself, you are accounting for every job in the shop. And let's say you're at the forming work center and someone says, oh, well, I should work on this job. And it's not that they're doing it deliberately, although this does happen (laughs) because sometimes people cherry pick the easy jobs, Mm -hmm. but they may not understand all the other things that are going on in the shop and the jobs and that even though that that seems like it's the right job to work on, it's actually not. And so allowing the system to schedule has, I think, big advantages for a shop and helps you keep things moving through the shop as well as being better able to hit your lead times and your committed delivery dates. Jay, in the same way that you, as a salesperson, were very organized in how that you made sure you contact and call each one of those customers and thank them for the order, and you followed up, and you always, the same thing is with running your shop with an ERP and trying to do that. You have to be very intentional about every step that you make, and you're not going to be perfect, but the more that you learn, the more that you do it, and the more that you see it, the better you get at those on-time deliveries, the better you get at the team members seeing that they, you know, I got to do this now, even though it's due five weeks from now, there's got to mm-hmm. be a reason it's here. And mm-hmm. the reason it's there because it gets painted in silkscreen. Right. And we got lead times. And it's got, and it's got, before it's painted in silkscreen, it's, it is uh, plated with masking. Yeah. Right. Uh, so totally get that. I've got a couple other things I want to get into here, but, the technology means typically change within a shop and the culture to accept change shops in my opinion there has to be a culture of change because technology is coming at us so fast but sometimes they have to have the owner or someone else show them and essentially get hands-on and implement the technology because if it's left up to someone who's just not comfortable with change, they just won't get the job done. There was an instance with technology where you had to do that. Can you just talk about how some of the instances where you've rolled up your sleeves and figured it out and made it happen and then deployed it to the shop? I mean, 
the, the scheduling was a big one and I, I'm not sure, you know, I probably brought up a, a specific instance to you before, but as you were saying that, I, 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 I want to talk about them seeing the overall picture, right? So when you introduce technology to a shop, you got to remember that many of your team members have no idea why you made the decision to buy that piece of equipment or that piece mm -hmm. of software. So yep. what I've tried to do and, and what I've done, like when we, we bought a big turret laser, I mentioned it, in it before and it's automated and it runs overnight and all those things is we took the time to let all of our team members stop, look at this machine coming in. Then the machine comes in and people are being trained and let them go over and see what this is doing. You know, why is that going to help our shop and why is that going to help you? And then even to the point of this is where our engineer is and this is what he's trying to do. Why is this going to benefit us? Because the buy-in was there. But I put in all of the tracking for our work orders, right? So everybody had to scan in and scan out of every job. And they were, that's one instance where the guys and girls in the shop, they just, they, they didn't understand why they had to do something that they never did before. So you take a, a video screen and you put it out there and you say, here's what I'm seeing, right? I see all these jobs when you're logged on and I see it when you don't log on or when you miss the logging on. So you go out there and you scan the job with them so they can see it. And you show them what those times mean. Mm -hmm. this, right. is what the, this is what the time means. And this is what I'm trying. And if you can't do that, you need to communicate that back to us because we're scheduling our shop that way. So that instance, I had to go out and the whole shop had to learn why they were doing what they were doing and what it meant to the business. Once they learned it, oh, okay, of course. And you got to sign off on this. Why? Because we're going to be ISO here. And we're, now we are, but we're going to be mm -hmm. ISO. You got to sign yeah. off on everything you do. What I'm hearing is that you are making a lot of investments in your shop and that you're not looking at them as costs. Could you share how you think of when you spend money on whether it's software, new equipment, even training, why you think that that's an investment and not a cost? Well, if you're not investing in new technology, then you're going to get passed. I mean, right now, everybody's getting the newest, latest, and greatest all the time. But what I look at it is, I want to make the job easier for my team members. So how could that be a cost? I mean, you're investing in something that is going to make everybody better and the part better for the customer. So when I bring a customer in, I want to say, I got this machine and it can do this, 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 and this to make your parts more cost-effective and better. And my operator isn't going to make a mistake that we made with our older machinery where he forgot to do X, Y, or Z because it's all programmed into the technology. The picture's on the screen. The mm -hmm. counts are on the hardware. It used to be the biggest thing that we had a problem with was, oh, they forgot to put a piece of hardware in, right? And then you get a brand-new Hager machine, and it shows the thing, and it cycles through the count. It shows the picture of the, the, where the hardware goes, and they can't miss a piece of hardware because it won't let them go to the next one. And right. that value is not a cost. That's an investment in better parts for the customer. And when the customer sees that, they're like, oh, man, they, look at this. They got all this new stuff. And I know that you've probably seen this a million times, but customers want to know that you're investing in things that are going to make their parts better. So that when they give you an order or if maybe you're not the cheapest person in the world, um, but you get the job done on time and it's quality, there's a reason for that. Because mm -hmm. you, you took the time to pick the machinery that's going to be best for your team and your business and for them at the same time. I love it. What do you see as next steps for drivers for growth? What's, what's the future? What are you thinking of buying or implementing? The plan, as it is today, is to bring in a new fiber laser, mm. with, uh, load and unload. So we're, gonna, we're, we're looking to move uh, into a little bit of automation there. And the fiber laser is just so much faster than our CO2 laser now. Mm -hmm. And we're looking to increase throughput um, there and be able to funnel more jobs downstream to our press brakes and our welders. So we're looking to do that. We're going to upgrade um, some of our press brakes. Let me just ask you, because I'm always curious, it, it just seems so crazy with the, what the wattages are now 
on lasers? What sort of wattage are you looking for for the fiber? So we're just going with a 3,000 watt fiber laser, right? Mm -hmm. well, we currently have a 4,000 watt CO2 laser. Our 4,000 ah. CO2 laser cuts quarter inch aluminum and we cut quarter inch stainless and we probably do quarter, you know, up to, we can do up to half inch steel. Mm -hmm. Well, the 3000 watt fiber laser is going to cut one inch steel with no problem. It's the fiber technology has come so far that you're like, Oh, well you just doubled the stuff you can cut. But wow. then when you get to the thinner materials, it's cutting at like 10 times the speed that you can cut now. So wow. as a matter of fact, when we were looking into this, this new Amada la laser, it can laser cut a hole faster than I can punch it. Wow. That's I, insane. That, that's, I, I think that this is huge for any shop owners who still think that you have to use punch presses for production. The laser technology, as you just described, is changing the game. Yeah. In, in, in our opinion, what's best for our customers in our shop is the turret laser combination mm -hmm. is very important to have because you need to be able to do secondary operations in mm. that machine and still laser cut the outside shapes that are crazy or any holes that you don't have special to them. Right. But yeah. the laser's making it so you're like, okay, I, I need to punch, but only when I need to punch special stuff, forming mm -hmm. or ribs or something like that or countersink, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, when you look at the machines, and I'm only talking about a 3,000-watt laser. I mean, I know there's 6,000-watt, you know, lasers, fiber lasers right now that are insane. But also, the one thing I, that maybe some uh, owners might like to hear about when they're looking at lasers is the one thing I've always heard from every salesperson is, when you look at a fiber laser, remember that it can only go as fast as you can load it. Mm. And most of the problem is that you can load the sheet and it cuts really fast and it comes out. How are you going to get that next piece of material in there? Mm. So having some automation mm -hmm. is always something to think about when you're looking at a laser because just a single operator just can't, they can't break the parts out fast enough to be able to run the machine because it's coming at them so fast. That's a, that's a super point. Press brakes, you started to get into that. Yeah, so um, we're looking at moving into some electro uh, servo press brakes and getting away from the hydraulics. Um, and that's something that uh, there's faster, you get faster speeds. So the approach is faster, the retract mm -hmm. is faster, and that bend time is faster. And the other thing that we've, other shops are probably already into all this stuff, but we're a little late to the game is, is um, the, the fixed height tooling for the press brakes. So investing in some tooling where you have fixed height tooling and maybe a single V on the bottom mm -hmm. and you can do more with, with less tooling. Um, and because it's fixed height, you can have different kinds of setups on both ends of the press brake and still be able to make those bends. So it's something that we're trying to do so that we can reduce setup times and run times on our press brakes. Now, there's something we're not getting, but I want to tell you about it anyway. But <laughs> if you haven't seen them, go look up the automatic tool changers that, that Amada has in their Amada, Amada press brake. In one minute, it's doing a full setup. Mm -hmm. So you make 10 parts, and let's say somebody comes over, oh, I, I welded one wrong. You hit the button, one minute setup, you can bend the part and however long it takes to bend and send it back and then hit another minute, and it puts your setup back right where you were. Yeah, Only we for have certain shops at big cost, but it's pretty cool. Well, I think there's a, a shop roughly your size who we had on a podcast early on, Sweeney Metal Fabricators, Chris Sweeney, and he has one of those, and it's been a game changer for him. He loves it, but they are super expensive. Yeah. Takes a little while to get it going, but once you're up and running, automatic tool changing is unbelievable. That's it's it. like yeah, it's like true. a manual. Bridgeport, in a sense, versus a or a CNC machine without a tool changer versus one that's got the uh, turret for a bunch of tools. So yeah, super exciting! I mean, come, no, coming to sheet metal. <laughs> uh, yeah, one other thing that I, I, I should have mentioned with technology is 
maybe some shop owners would appreciate this. As shop owners, we go out, we look at new technology. Mm-hmm. We, we meet the salesmen of the machinery. We sometimes go to trade shows. We figure out what we're going to buy and we make a decision. We bring it in and we say, hey guys, I got you a new machine. When I was first starting out, that was the way that things worked, right? That was the way I thought it worked. I think it's important now as we move forward, especially with the technology the way it is, to bring your team in, into that fold. Mm. Like That's something I've learned that I would love to just share with other people. When I started bringing my team into the fold, they had different perspectives on the machines and what they needed and, and what they, they thought would be best for our customers and for our shop floor. And it's something that that, I do all the time now with everything I do is, is bring the team in on the decision so as they can be a part of it. And, but also, so I can get something that they'll actually want to use and that they think is going to benefit us. <laughs> sure. Get the buy-in up front. You talked about some of the equipment on the floor. Is there any software or any other soft costs, if you will, that you're looking at implementing? I'm still in the early stages of researching that software because I've put in so much software in the last two years mm-hmm. um right now we're gonna we're continuing to use what amada has you know provided which is all the offline stuff as much as possible put the real hard work into the engineer's hands and that's the biggest thing that's helping our shop is you know if, if an engineer can spend an hour program that whole thing and mm-hmm. when it gets off to the floor the guy only takes 10 minutes that's huge so that's the biggest thing we're implementing just on the shop floor as far as technology, there's a next step that comes with the paperless thing and some of what Amada's bringing down to the, the machine management side of things that I haven't fully vetted yet. Um, but that's something that I'm working on as well. What else? What haven't we talked about that you want to share with folks? I just think that, you know, as a third generation person in this business, as a leader in the, in the business, I think that I want everybody in this business to be successful. I want every shop owner to be successful. I want everybody to have enough customers. And I, and I, I certainly want people to move forward. And I want us to be successful. Mm-hmm. But I think I just wanted to say one thing on a personal note. We're in this to make money and do well and all of those kinds of things are great. But as long as we stay grounded in the fact that the most important people that we have, the team members on the floor, the most important people that we have, most important machinery, most important anything, building, whatever. And I come in every day and say, it's my job to work this business so that their families succeed and their families are healthy and happy and they make enough money and to grow and do better for the next generation and their family. And I know this isn't like, some big thing that a, that a shop owner can take and be like, oh, that was the best advice ever. But it's just something that works for me to come in and remember that every day, as opposed to sometimes the craziness of all of this technology and all these things that I'm doing. I mean, it's going to be great. And we're going to do all that stuff. But, you know, we're people first and, and we got to remember that. So it's something that grounds me. And I, I don't really have any great advice for other shop owners because other people are doing amazing things. And, and I look to them for advice. Um, but on a personal note, I can just say how, you know, what my philosophy is and, you know, put my people first. And, and that way uh, I know we'll always be successful. And there's so much satisfaction of seeing the smiles on their face and when they learn something new or they accomplish something rather than doing the same job over and over again. And, and certainly we do have a lot of responsibility as owners to make sure that we keep them employed so that their families don't have to worry. And that's, yeah. a, that, that's a, a lot, but if you have the growth mindset, if you're making the investments and continually thinking about your shop, then you're in a better place. You have more options than folks who are continue to do the same thing that they've done in the past. I have one other thing. Yeah. I, was, I, I kept an ear to the ground and, and my eyes open with regards to rapid and certainly how this paperless parts thing came. Mm-hmm. And I just, a lot of the decision that, that I've made in the last several years have been a result of some of the, the many things that you've done well in growing that business. And from, even from a marketing standpoint, learning things from, from how you guys did it, it's like a roadmap. Things are different now 
but the philosophy is the same in, mm-hmm. in the way that you approach things. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, if people are listening to this podcast, there's so much meat and potatoes that you can get from just listening to these things from different owners. I think it's, it's phenomenal. Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't go back and listen to all, all 46 podcasts yet, but, or however many there are. But I can tell you that, that the, the nuggets in each one of them are really great. So I'm, number one, I'm happy that you were very successful at Rapid and it led to this to be, for you to be able to do this. And I know the paperless parts is going to be amazing because they're great for me. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing how this thing grows because I know once you guys put your minds to it, something's going to be huge. Well, thank you for the kind words there, Rod. I really appreciate that. And thanks for being on the show today. It, it was exciting talking with you. You were doing so much. You've changed the dynamics of a family shop and doing it in so with the respect for tradition. You've put in place the drivers for the next 50 years. So again, really appreciate you opening up, sharing your vision, and in particular, how as a leader sometimes you have to be the one that is driving the change, getting your hands dirty and implementing that vision. So Thanks uh, again for being on. Last shot for any comment that you want to leave folks with or any last words? I just want to say it was an honor to be on the show and I thank you for everything that you're doing. And, you know, I wish everybody the, the best of success in everything that they put their mind to. Well, I'm, I'm so inspired by you. And if someone wants to reach out to you it, because they are inspired, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Just go on to aldeanmetal.com. Can you spell that, please? A-L-D-I-N-E-M-E-T-A-L.com. There's a, they can send RFQs there. They can load them right into paperless parts, and we'll get a quote right back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Rod. So many nuggets here, and I will put forth to the owners, does your shop run from the customer's perspective as easily as your cell phone or Amazon? what could you do to remove friction from your interactions with a customer? And from the customer perspective, what friction exists in working with you? Should you perhaps think about having a conversation with some of those $5,000 and under customers or whatever financial level doesn't make sense for your shop? And we didn't get into this on the podcast, but Rod and I talked about it before, and he actually takes time away from the shop to think about these things and be intentional. And I'll throw this out there. When's the last time you took a half day away from the shop just to think about the business and what you want to do with it and create some specific plans for your shop's future? We often get caught up in working in the business rather than on the business, but the real breakthroughs happen when we step back and think. Ever get a breakthrough thought when you're in the shower, think of it as a half-day shower. Until next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting, and we're going to get you a 3D printer rod, those 3D printers printing. Have a great day, folks.